0: Across difference. And so we trust that we are participating in the work of the Spirit even tonight.
1: Uh,
0: And I want to begin by praying Paul's prayer from Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. I read it last week as well. I'm reading it from the message tonight. Let's pray. So Paul writes, so this is my prayer, but we'll make it our prayer. This is our prayer, that our love will flourish and that we will not only love much, but well. We pray we might learn to love appropriately, that we might use our head and test our feelings so that our love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental gush. We pray we might live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus will be proud of, bountiful in fruits from the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all, getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. May our love flourish tonight, O God. May we love much and well Would we use our heads and our hearts? May we bring glory to you, we ask in your name. Amen? Amen. 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 So you'll see from your handout, uh, just a brief review from last week. Our purpose for being here tonight is to communicate our convictions around LGBTQ2S plus inclusion in our church. And that is that people of all gender identities, all gender expressions and sexual orientations must be lovingly welcomed into full participation in the life, ministry and leadership of CAP Church. And while we very much invite honest conversation and dialogue around this conviction, CAPS leaders are settled and moving forward based on these convictions, as Robbie said last week. So that's our purpose tonight, to communicate, but also to explain to you how we arrived at these conclusions. Our posture is one of humility and hospitality. Humility regarding our own opinions and interpretations of the Bible. And am I sure I'm right? I'm sure Todd's right. I'm not so sure about myself. But, um, I'm not sure I'm right. We might be wrong. But I, I am sure that I would rather err on the side of God's generosity rather than judgment. We are not here to change your mind. But we are here to communicate with you how I and how we came to this conclusion. So humility. We might be wrong hospitality towards those in our church who might have different opinions and interpretations. We call this evening's, uh, our the wide embrace or wider embrace and you're all included in this wider embrace. You aren't all of a sudden out because you don't share our convictions. And our approach very briefly is something um, that uh, is called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. We explained that a little bit last week, and I won't um, explain it again, but you do see here those four pillars, those four ways that we um, want to incorporate as we discern what God wants us to do. This Wesleyan quadrilateral scripture, tradition, reason, and experience is something that we think uh, a process, a methodology one should use In making good theology, but it's also a reality that we do use these things when we do theology. We're not always intentional about it, we're not always overt or self aware, but we do depend on these things. And it's better to be intentional and to be overt about the sources of authority that we are listening to, and to be explicit about how our own lived experience and our own social location affects how we understand the Bible. A lot of what we're talking about tonight um, is based on Karen Keene's book, which we highly recommend to you. A few copies are available. It's uh, Scripture, Ethics, and the Possibility of Same-Sex Relationships. Karen Keene is a really good writer and scholar, uh, herself a lesbian Christian, and what she offers in the book is what we're hoping to do in this series. We, we want to help you to know how to think well about something not what to think. And Karen Keane is is really good at doing that. Um, So tonight we're gonna build on what we discussed last week. The teaching that that Todd and I will share is going to be different, Uh, building a little bit on what we discussed last week. Similar format though, I'll talk for a little bit and then Todd will. Uh, And then we're gonna have a conversation with someone super special, Alex Wider. Um, it was really funny, Alex, I, we, we call this wider embrace without, without actually, you know. That's wider a, embrace, it's a brace of the wider. Um, and uh, anyways, we're happy to have you here and really are grateful that you're willing to, to be vulnerable with us in that way to share your story, we don't take that lightly. Uh, all right, so let's dig into this teaching stuff that I will be beginning with and then and then Todd will. Uh, we're gonna be talking a bit about, in the next little bit, about doing ethics like Jesus. So in a lot of Christian circles, and I'm sure that you have run in them, um, a person or a church's stance on something like gay marriage has become the litmus test for orthodoxy. You can't be an affirming person regarding LGBTQ inclusion and take the Bible seriously. And honestly, I kind of used to think that too, I confess, but that was a long time ago and I don't think that anymore. Partly because of what I learned as I paid attention to how Jesus reads the Bible, how Jesus interprets the Bible and how Jesus models for us how to do ethics. So those of you who were here last week remember Todd's caution against those people who begin a statement with, the Bible says. Todd, I remember you saying something like that's usually a preface to something unpleasant or unkind. Um, It's an indicator to me probably that this person is reading the Bible in a kind of a flat way that fails to grasp the very real interpretive and deliberative task that is required when you take something that the Bible says and seek to apply it today. Jesus doesn't say the Bible says. But we do hear Jesus declaring throughout uh, the Gospels, especially Matthew chapters five to seven, that we've been talking a lot about last year. Jesus says, you have heard it said, it's almost like the Bible says, right? Mm -hmm. You've heard it said, but I say to you, And what a world opens up when we hear those words of Jesus, but I say to you. And I suspect the teachers of the law at that time might also have accused Jesus of not valuing Torah enough by saying those words. But Jesus is always clear about what he's about. He's not seeking to abolish previous commands. He's not decreeing new laws. He's seeking to fulfill the intent of the original law. And I think that Jesus might actually be wanting to model for us how we are meant to approach the Bible, how we are meant to interpret, how we are meant to deliberate and draw ethics from scripture, how we are meant to try to hear God's commands in their original time-bound cultural context, and then through prayer and deliberation and discussion to fulfill the timeless intent of God's law in a new setting. That's the task before us as Christians, I think. And that's how we do ethics. This is essential as we seek to live as faithful Christians in the area of LGBTQ inclusion. So how does Jesus do this? First of all, Jesus gives us the key, the interpretive key, the, the co-breaker, if you like. And what is it? Super simple, love of God and neighbor. Again and again, when Jesus is asked, which law is the most important one? Jesus says, some version of love God, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things, Jesus says. It's so easy to understand. Doesn't get discussed much, I don't think. Doesn't get argued about, and it seems somehow as a separate category that doesn't actually impinge on any other Christian theology. Have you noticed that? Loving God and neighbor, sure, yeah, okay. I know we're meant to love God and neighbor, but what does God think about gays? <laughs> it's like, no, these these two worlds actually are meant to intertwine. Loving God and neighbor is at the heart of the law. That's what Jesus tells us. And so that needs to be the interpretive key through the lens through which we see anything that God declares. Another way of saying this, this interpretive key, uh, loving God and neighbor, Jesus also talks a lot about righteousness. He talks a lot about righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, especially. And we talked a lot about this last year, that righteousness, uh, another way of understanding that word, it is right relatedness. Right? It's, it's not about um, seeking a purity of faith. It's about seeking to be rightly related to one another, to our neighbor, to the other, to God, to creation, to ourselves. Right relatedness. That's another way of understanding the interpretive key to all of God's commands. It's not always easy to do this. What we're talking about is not clear-cut It's not formulaic. But if you try and seek the interpretive key, the the intent, if you like, behind all of what God is saying is somehow God is trying to get us at loving God, loving neighbor, greater right relatedness between one another or between us and God, then somehow I feel like we get closer to understanding scripture. And if none of that really makes sense to you, then I'm once again going to quote Todd, who said last week, basically, if after reading the whole Bible, you're more of an a-hole than when you started, you're reading it wrong. Mm -hmm. It's another safe. Yay, (laughs) sorry. So, yeah, (laughs) you could say that. Um, So that's the interpretive key, love of God and neighbor or greater uh, righteousness as right relatedness. Um, Intent, that's the other thing that's really important here. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus says. He demonstrates that he is taking God's law really seriously. But he's not just focusing on what God says, he's focusing on the intent behind it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, this really familiar verse. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, right? Which is a which is his quoting of a previous Old Testament verse, Leviticus 24. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? If someone takes out your eye, well, then you take out their eye. But I say to you, Jesus says, if someone hits you on your left cheek, offer them your right. Jesus is not saying, that law was stupid. Here's a better one. He's saying, actually, if you he didn't say all this, but it's actually true. If you think about the context and the culture, The original command was spoken by God in the midst of a shame-based culture. A culture that was pretty violent, actually. And so the intent behind that law, the intent to foster more love of God and neighbor, was to limit the damage. Okay, if someone takes out your eye, you can only take out their eye. You can't take out both eyes. Jesus knew the intent behind it. And so then he says, you know what, that's that's what God said back then. And the intent was to limit the damage you could do. But how about a better way? If the intent is to love God and neighbor, and the intent is actually to, to, to limit the harm that you would do to someone who's hurt you, why don't you go even farther and and walk the way of peace with them? How about a nonviolent response? How about... How about going even further with that original intent? Jesus looks at the original law, understands because he's God, understands it perfectly in its context, sees the intent behind it, and seeks to reinterpret and reimagine that for a new time, a different culture, and shows us the better way. So it shows us how to get closer to that greater right relatedness or love of God and neighbor. So the interpretive key, loving God and neighbor. Looking at the intent behind something is also a part of what Jesus does. And the final thing is Jesus is responsive to human need and suffering. We see this everywhere, of course, and how Jesus extends um, compassion and healing towards those who are hurting. But even in the area of, of law-keeping, Jesus does this. When you look at how Jesus talks about the Sabbath, he, he breaks the Sabbath laws, according to the Pharisees, but he doesn't completely disregard the intent of Sabbath. Sabbath was a good thing, and Jesus always valued Sabbath, but he always took us back to the original intent. The intent of entering in to, to rest or, or greater love of God in the midst of that Sabbath rest. And so, is it okay to do a good thing on the Sabbath? Yes, Jesus would say. It's always lawful to do good on the Sabbath, even if that's technically work. So we find Jesus healing on the Sabbath, which is, of course, scandalous back in that day. But Jesus shows us a better way to keep Sabbath. He doesn't do away with Sabbath. But in response to human need, he shows us a different way forward. Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath, he says. So Jesus does all these things all the time. He he even does it in his teaching on divorce, which Todd will talk about in a few moments. He talks about a law, the intent behind it, and the accommodation necessary based on human need. What if we are meant to use this approach that Jesus offers, that we see him doing all the time. What if, we are, what if we are meant to approach scripture this way? What if Jesus is equipping us to do what he did? Let's try on a few, shall we? Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13 are two of those clobber passages that we often hear from those who would want to take a more traditional stance against LGBTQ inclusion. And it's some version of, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Well, what do we know about the culture of that time that would help us understand what these commands are trying to foster. What do we know about the culture? We know that it was patriarchal. We know that it was heteronormative. We know that there were fixed gender roles. We know that there was no understanding of a fixed sexual orientation, just acts. It's interesting to notice if you read through any of those verses that have an exhaustive catalog basically of who you should not have sex with, or what you should not have sex with. Nowhere in those passages is it mentioned that a woman should not be sexually intimate with a woman. It's interesting to notice that. There are many reasons why, including the idea that it was only men's seed that was thought to have procreative potential, so a woman doing something with a woman wasn't really considered sex. Interesting fact for you, perhaps. In any case, all that context helps us to understand that the intent behind the law maybe was not what we think. It was not meant because there was no understanding of a fixed sexual orientation. All these laws were talking about how these people, God's people, were meant to be distinct in their culture from the other nations. How are you going to show the world that you are different, that you are my people, that you are holy? These purity codes in Leviticus are spoken to a community under pressure to maintain their identity, to not conform to the sexual and societal norms of the surrounding nations. The intent behind those laws was to love God and to love neighbor by being a people set apart. Noticing all this, how might we fulfill the intent of these laws today? How might we as God's people show our distinctiveness and that we are set apart as God's people today? There are many answers to that question and some people think that maintaining the prohibition against same-sex relationships is how we maintain our distinctiveness. Personally, I think there are many better ways for us to show who we are as God's people in this time and in this culture. Given the thousands of years that separate our two cultures, given the many differences that exist between this time now and then, what are the ways that God might call us, his people, to be distinctive in the world today? That, to me, is a much more interesting conversation, a much more interesting question. What better way might the Spirit be inviting us into? You've heard it said, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, Jesus might say. But I say to you, what, I wonder? What might Jesus say to us? That's the question I want for us to lean into. I don't feel like I have the authority to answer that for all of us. But I think as a a community, we are coming closer to the answer. And in case I haven't convinced you yet that Jesus wants us to be having these kinds of conversations, in case I haven't convinced you yet that Jesus is modeling this for us in the Gospels in order to pass the torch on to us, we can read the book of Acts and see that the Spirit of Jesus is doing exactly the same thing there. You have heard it said in Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 to 2, that no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord, and that no one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. You have heard it said that. But I say to you that the first convert to Christianity in Acts chapter 8 was an Ethiopian eunuch, whose presence in the people of God is entirely contradicted by Deuteronomy 23. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus is showing us a better way. Or to paraphrase the words that come out of Peter's mouth in Acts chapter 10, you have heard it said that no Jew should associate with a Gentile. But Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. See, there it is again, the spirit of Jesus leading us through a better way, not a way that that completely abolishes the intent of what came before, but a better way to help us reach that love of God and neighbor that Jesus desires for us, that greater righteousness. Jesus says to us in, in Matthew 6, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, what kind of righteousness is he talking about? Well, he's talking about that right-relatedness, right? That right-relatedness between us and the LGBTQ community, I wanna suggest. The righteousness between us and, and indigenous people, that greater righteousness, that greater right-relatedness, that's the better way. And I, I see our way forward this way in this issue by greater and greater embrace. So it's not an easily applied formula. It is a communal process we're talking about that we've already been on for a while. It requires humility, and it requires dependence on one another and the spirit. But it's a more spacious, it's a more hopeful, it's a more integrated way, and it is the better way. Way better than the Bible says.
2: Over to you. Amen. Take it away, Todd. Amen. Um, I think to move to, to what I'm going to say, why don't I know we opened in prayer, but um, I think to just take a bit of space from what Kim has said, because uh, I think there's a lot of invitation there, and we're we're gathering like to think about ideas and to talk about moving in a particular direction, but when it comes down to it, it it's. Like, Lord, give me ears to hear. So I'll just take a minute of quiet for you to come before the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Thank you for these words shared. You never leave us or forsake us and you, by your grace, you don't allow us to um, stop growing unless we insist upon it, I suppose. So come Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Amen. Um, I could draw a couple of metaphors for you to start what I'm going to say. I think it actually relates to what Kim was sharing with us as well in that, so I'll do one like a narrative one, like Netflix or watching a show or something, or a series. Um, What I'm really thinking of is an academic setting, like a series of lectures or something. Um, But it fits in both of those. So the lecture one first would be like, you're really into a course that you're taking. And I know you've all had that experience. It can be in a really high academic setting, or it can be a community, whatever, right? And just really into it. Invariably, if there's more than a few kind of gatherings, there's one key gathering that is, like, weighty, where it might even be a little more challenging to engage, right? There's not as much, like, easily digestible stuff, but you, you push through it, and then it informs your vision of the whole thing. And, ah, okay. So, narratively, that's, like, you know whatever episode of Breaking Bad or something, right? Where you're just like, or... So not just the throwaway stuff that doesn't add to the narrative, but the stuff that, that explains and unlocks things for you and allows you to move. Uh, in this room, with all these angles, I could, we could think about painting. It's been a while since this has been painted, I think. But um, you, if you're painting, and those of you who, are, who have done any painting, you know that it's mostly taping. It's barely any painting. It's just all that work of of all the stuff. And so I'm mindful of that with a little bit of what I want to share tonight. But I feel, I feel good about sharing this because I think I have a sense of where we are. And I think that people sometimes come to these particular conversations and issues. One day we'll be past calling it issues. Mm-hmm. But come to these kinds of things with, oh, I guess it's okay to change my mind, or I guess it's okay to move from here to here but they, nobody's done any of the taping. Um, and what I want to identify is a theological shift of understanding. So I hope, I, obviously I want to do so in a way that I think w- w- I intend to, to be engaging, but I am, I am aware of that, is what I'm saying, okay, as, as we dive in. So what I want to talk about is the theological frame that we have that has led us to a place where we think we're supposed to decide about these kinds of things—that's um, inter- that should be interesting to you. But if you grew up in the evangelical church, you you know that air is breathed, but you really might not have asked why. Do, why are we supposed to decide this? And why, if somebody says lesbian Christian, do oh, what? you know, a number of years ago, some of some of you in this room would have gone, oh, how does. Right? Why did we? How do we get to that place? In the nonprofit that I help run, we have a number of lines that we repeat, and one of them is, "Most people are better than their theology." Um, I stole it from a friend, David Goa. He stole it from his dad, um, who was a like Lutheran uh, pietist in the prairies back in the day. But I learned most people are better than their theology when I was pastor for all those years at Sutherland and such, because there were some people. Not me, of course, but there were some people that had terrible theology but were wonderful people. I mean, they thought gay equaled hell. You know, condemned, ready to condemn just about everything. Showed up at church every Sunday. Mostly seemed to get their ideas from arm's length from the church, usually other voices a little bit. But um, if their neighbor was in need and they happened to be gay, they would help them and love them. They're better than their theology. There's a key in that for me as we go. And I'll unlock it, I hope, a little bit as, as I kind of explain. Most of the theological frame, I think, that, that most of us in this room, it would be different if I was speaking in maybe a Presbyterian context or a United Church context, some mainline stuff. Um, but even there, um, and I think Catholic would hold this to some degree, but certainly in my evangelical experience, our theological frame, That thing that has allowed us to get to this place where it's like, we're supposed to decide if this is okay or not. Um, It is defined, I'm going to use three words here, by confines, divisions, and scarcity. So confines, how something is held, basically meant this. God is confined in holiness, and we are confined in sinfulness. Sinfulness. Um, and then we draw a little four spiritual laws or whatever that he you know, crossed this bridge or something and the bridge is the cross. And, um, there, but the ways of breaking these confines are meager because most people are damned forever. Even if you get saved, you're one of the very few in the history of creation. And so the confines hold. Even if they're kind of cracks. Um, most people don't or can't or won't or don't want to is what I was taught um, or came to understand. Get to break those confines. That's So what the theological frame then begins to exist under is uh, a concept of separation. God and humanity, the word you need to know is separation. That's the theological frame. And then elaborate structures of church and social gathering and preaching and theological education and all kinds of stuff are built around that central idea of separation. Uh, if you think about your church upbringing, now I can move this from the theological to just <coughs> your life. Oh yeah, our youth group was this. It was an alternative to this. The thing was that it was the world was bad and we were this. Um, if you think about... Um, like we, the world was this big bad world, but we were the few and the chosen, or we chose. You know that's an argument too, theologically. Um, and who were the chosen? Well, we were. That's a theological giveaway that you've got a problem. When all the in in people are your people, your theology might not be very deep which I kind of think in this, I think we're primitive still, even talking about these things. I, don't, I think we've got miles and miles and miles to go. Um, so that's the confines. The divisions is who is in and who is out. You know this more. Sinner and saint, saved and damned. And our mission is to go and save the lost. And who's the lost? Everyone except us. Um, another giveaway. Now... To get to you, and as, as I know you, and I might not even know you personally, but you know, just being a pastor, most people are better than this. Most people know, I would say, by creation, sustaining presence of God, most people don't think this way naturally. Um, we're better than our theology. Who is in and who is out. So then, we had in our upbringing then, and in my experience in the evangelical church, well, the ones we knew for sure were out were people with homosexual desire. Um, So, and I haven't actually really changed my thinking on this at all, and I always, as I told you last week, always struggled with the fact that why, why are we so against gay people? I, I didn't see it scripturally in the rest. But. So confines, divisions, and scarcity. Scarcity is salvation. Most people are not saved, is what we were told. That means that salvation by itself is, is scarce. Um, Janelle Paris, who I meant to quote last week, she's an anthropologist, and we referred to her writing last week, she said, it's, it's breaking that fallacy that we measure in our Christian faith, we ought to measure others by their morality rather than by their belovedness. Because if we're measuring them by their morality, we can write ourselves as okay and we can keep the separation. But if we're measuring them by their, by their belovedness, we can't be separate. So I hope for a better theological understanding, and I think it's there, and I think it's entirely spiritual. Uh, It has to do, Kim kept pointing at it over and over again, with the words we and us. The concept, I'm not saying there's no personal salvation. Salvation has a personal aspect to it. But salvation can never be understood uh, mostly in personal terms. Um, If I'm saved and you're not, there's, there's an issue. We are saved together. I'm not making universalist statements here. I'm making a statement about the nature of salvation. It's something that is we and us, not I and me. So that's where we're pointing theologically. Interlude here, because that's enough. A little, there's a couple heavy, more heavy thoughts coming. So interlude. friend of mine grows up in the church, um, isn't gay. I mean, he, he is, but he didn't know um, and it wouldn't have been allowed, and so then become like takes on leadership roles, all those other other kinds of things. Goes to university, secular university, which is a funny term too, um, and then starts to starts to examine this a little bit in terms of his own life and desire and whatever else. Uh, but still thinks, well, this is just this isn't right, so I'll I'll fix this. Like things can be fixed in my life so far to this point. Goes and sees a counselor, Christian counselor. Um, And the Christian counselor, I'm not ascribing motivation here, right? I don't mean to mock the counselor. I do mean to mock the the theology a little bit. Um, The Christian counselor says, well, and would give an exercise each time to this individual. So on this particular week, they said, um, what you need to do is you need to go home and watch some sports. And, t- and then find ways that when you're with your friends, you can talk about sports. Okay. If you just learn how to do some manly things, we'll help you overcome. So I have a question. How does that happen? It's a theological frame. Trying to make someone acceptable. What are we doing when we do that? That only exists in the frame of exclusion, separation, um, conforming to one idea that's deemed acceptable. But this is Jennings, a paraphrase of Willie Jennings. God moves towards us all. And if he's not moving toward my friend before he learned to talk about football, then I have a theological misunderstanding. Jennings, God moves against the insularities of life, the things we use to close and separate ourselves off from one another. National, cultural, ethnic, economic, sexual, and racial. Seeking the ground of deeper belonging, one with another, as Kim was saying, joined to another, who remains another because they remain different than us morality is towards not against so theological concept number one incarnation incarnation in a frame of we and us and God towards rather than God in that separate understanding incarnation makes sense in that we frame it actually doesn't make good sense in the, in, in the theological frame that I picked up growing up because it incarnation breaks all the confines. God became flesh. So Philippians 2, Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, right? But he emptied himself, like his, of, of, even his identity as God. He emptied himself, took on flesh, took on the form of humanity, and became obedient even to death, even to death on a cross, that in his name that God would exalt him. That's his exaltation, is this. So what's been one of the... The throw terms, the, the accusational terms in, in any kind of social issue stuff, you ready for the words? It's going to be a trigger, trigger warning. Slippery slope. <laughs> if what I just described to you from Philippians 2 isn't slippery slope, then that's where I could put some profanity in here. There's no slope slipperier than this. Being in very nature God, descended to death and hell. I know you're getting to know me by now, so I wrote a song about it, and it is, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less Than Jesus Christ's Slippery Slopedness.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: slippery Slope is a cudgel used by people who want to keep things separate. And there's no room for Christian theology real Christian theology, which says God broke the confines to move towards us. And then says, in Philippians 2, you know this for those of you who know the Bible, that section starts with, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Like, I get upset by this, not only for my brothers and sisters who have different sexual identity, who have been so hurt, I get upset by this for Christian theological reasons, the damage we've done to our own theological, the beauty we have to offer the world, because we've allowed loud voices and scary presentations and separation distortion. Anyway, the second concept is creation. That's a theological concept, creation. It's not just a. And the, the term creation ordinance is one that will come up um, in some defenses of uh, exclusionary understanding. So this is the way things are meant to be. So creation has this set. It's supposed to be that way. The way things were supposed to be from the start. And which I always found curious as a Christian because I thought, well, who cares? Like, I thought we were talking about Jesus. Jesus. I, you know, and that everything moves towards Jesus, not that Jesus serves the way things were supposed to be. Um, so, of course, the the horrible way of saying this, where you know, people would I'll say it just because this room feels safe. Um, it is God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve that's a that, that, that's another line that says we're all theologians because what that person has just done is make a creation ordinance argument. Um, they just might not know the words creation ordinance. So if, if you ever hear somebody say that, you don't really anymore, but say, oh, you believe in creation ordinance? And they'll be really <laughs> um, that's just the way it's supposed to be. Um, or, so we could do that and then Jesus serves those ordinances. Or we could look at creation in in a way that has something to do with Jesus Christ. So, really going to blitz through this quick. You ready? This is more of that taping. Creation itself. Day one, light and day. There's a day and a night. The first day is good. That's day one. Day two, waters and sky. So all this confusion is kind of dealt with. There's waters and sky. Then, and that's good. Second day. Day three, water and land. So you have your first kind of separation that way. Vegetation, growing things, seeding things, all day three. Good. Things are growing and seeding on day three. Day four, the sun and the moon, the lights that govern the day and the night. right. Day five, God fills the seas. Day six, that's where we shine, people, humans. Day seven is the ultimate creation, which is not humanity. The ultimate creation is rest. Sabbath, shalom. Um, if you're going creation ordinance stuff, you'll notice in the account I just gave, running through them, if it's the way it's supposed to be, vegetation and seeds and, and the first day come before there's a sun.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: So we've got a lot of work to do scientifically if we're going to hold on to creation ordinances. If <laughs> the stories aren't written this way. So instead, another offering. So this is, this is a correction, I believe. Actually, I don't like using that word. This is more Christian, I would say, as I experience my faith. The creation in my Christian faith has to do with Jesus, right? As Kim was saying, Jesus is the fulfillment. You know from Colossians and other places. In him, he is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's preeminent in creation. Creation is not static. It is ongoing and dynamic. This goes back to the discernment. It's creation's fulfillment or peak, so different than Sabbath in a way. Creation's peak is not the end of the account in Genesis. Creation's peak in Christian theology is Jesus Christ. The one true... Human, the one true light, the revelation of God. And what does Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He's also Sabbath. And Jesus joins people together. It's the we view rather than the separation view. But Jesus has been enlisted into this theological frame of fear and division that we've held for so long. We don't have to hold it and we don't even have to be angry about it. We can just do better. The reason we don't have to be angry about it even though we can feel bad for the pain caused to people, but the reason we don't have to be angry about it moving forward is that there's more heft in truth and power in in the joining theology. It doesn't need to be protected the other one needs protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I'm writing this, ahead in my mind an old U2 song, Bono mm-hmm. Lyric. I can't remember what album, but it's called, What If God Would Send His Angels? Uh, and it, it says, Jesus never let me down. You know, Jesus used to show me the score. Then they put Jesus in show business. Now it's hard to get in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus got put into the business of condemning others. And then well-meaning Christians, I mean it, mostly well-meaning Christians thought that's what they were supposed to do, decide. What's our stance on that issue? And that person, what a terrible thing to do. It's not just that we need to accept, it's that we need to repent. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Jesus became enlisted to be a moralist anti-gay crusader. I used to say in church, find me five places in the Gospels where Jesus takes a stance on a moral, like, social issue of the day. I mean, other than pulling up the ones who were were defined as unclean or unworthy, he's not a moral stance guy. (laughs) And yet my faith, I had to, even as a young person, battle, why is that what I'm supposed to be doing according to so much understanding? So Jesus speaks about marriage. Kim said, I'll finish with this. They come to him, religious leaders come to him, and they say, here's, this, here's the frame, remember? Whenever you get, the, is it lawful? He already has his answer before they finish the question. Is it lawful that a man divorce his wife? They want to know what's acceptable and not acceptable, right? And they want to, they want to pin him down because they know he has better answers than... So is it lawful? And he goes back to creation and says, male and female, he created them. And the two become one flesh. They're joined, don't divide. What's Jesus speaking to there? The creation ordinance understanding says he's speaking to sexual differentiation. Male and female, he created them. Of course, in Galatians, we have, in Jesus Christ, there is neither male nor female. Um, what he's definitely speaking about is working in the opposite way of joining. You, you want to be separate from a person that you declared your love to? That's a big deal. He, he, he didn't say that could never happen, by the way. But he said, you want, and they were just supposed to give a piece of paper. Here's your piece of paper. You're on your own now to the wife. And Jesus basically rejected that and said, why would you treat someone like that? It's a person. Thomas Merton, um, Trappist monk, he talked about this kind of thing. The people who seem to like, there, he said there are people who seem to like to talk about concepts of sin, damnation, punishment, the justice of God, retribution, the end of the world, and so on in ways that they seem to smack their lips with unspeakable pleasure. If you've been raised in a separation frame, there are some, I think it's the exception, by the way, by God's grace, but who do seem to like this. Merton goes on to say, it sometimes happens that people who preach most vehemently about evil and the punishment of evil, so that they seem to have practically nothing else on their minds except sin, are really unconscious haters of other people. They think that the world doesn't appreciate them and this is their way of getting even. The dominance we have faced around these conversations and issues um, is that we're not supposed to love, accept, be together with. Jesus was not about this. It does matter to me that he never addressed this issue. It's been so terribly important to the church and this particular was obviously not terribly important as a, like, you know what, keep these people away to Jesus. And he broke every barrier of his day. So the last bit, Willie James Jennings. Um, talking about our Christian history, which he would say this as well, and he's speaking as a black American. Um, and his, he maintains that actually the whole Christian theological enterprise has been built on, on a lot of these separation things. And he's arguing for better. But he does say there's much good in Christian history, obviously. But Christian history also, he says, includes forced conversions, evangelism at the tip of a sword, hollered threat. Like anything that is believe or else is a failure. <laughs> Karl Barth, one of my theological heroes, Became friends a little bit with Billy Graham, liked him as a person, and thought he was quite great. And but then went to one of the Crusades. I was a counselor to the Billy Graham Crusade. He went to Billy Graham Crusade, and he was writing about it later, and he said, Aye. And someone asked, why are you saying that? He was Swiss-German, so he said, Aye. Um, And he said, uh, you know, he, he was great, gifted preacher, but then he, then he heated up the fires of hell, and they came running. And he said, this is Bart, you don't have to, he said, the gospel cannot be presented at gunpoint. We have a long way to go. It's not only this. I'd like to see a better theological frame. I think this particular conversation is maybe a slippery slope to something better. Jennings argues, in the end, not for merely tolerance, he says, not for merely inclusion, this is, but for embrace. because that is where and actually he has to hear it even better word, celebration. that actually it's not only embrace of difference, it's celebration of difference because this is a reflection of the character of God in the world. And this was always what our faith was about. Yeah. Um, so that's um, what I have, and it was a lot of taping, but thank you. So <laughs> Thanks, John. Amen. That's
0: great, huh? uh, Many of you know Alex. He has been a long-time capper, um, and uh, I'm so grateful to have been his pastor for these many years. I feel like in my own journey of understanding um These things alex has has taught me a lot just by being just by being you just by accompanying you on this journey and um, it's been a real privilege to watch you grow and to become more of the person that God meant for you to be i'm starting to cry <laughs> 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 um so Alex, just really glad that you said yes when I asked you to share your story so um Alex and I are going to have a a conversation. We have some questions that we've already worked out. Uh, But I would invite you, even though you're not being interviewed, to to be actively listening, um, to be attentive to what the spirit might be saying to you, to us in, in in this story. And also, once Alex finishes sharing, the main thing that I'll be asking of you in response is to share a point of resonance with Alex's story, so we're not, I'm not gonna make you all share, but would love it if a few of you, after Alex shares, just uh, to share something that you identify with, something that is a, is a connection of, uh, a point of, of resonance between your story, your experience, and, and uh, Alex's. And then, of course, you'll have an opportunity to speak a word of, of affirmation um, and, and a question or two. So, um, Alex, let's begin. By you telling me a little bit about some of the spiritual influences in your life growing
3: up. Yeah. Um, I feel like I had a lot of great spiritual influences in my life over the years, going back to what, like one of my earliest memories, my, my dad was involved with Rise Up, which is Russ and Sandy Mm -hmm. Rosine, a lot of you know.
0: We're selling CDs over there. Yeah. (laughs) One of
3: my earliest memories is actually like opening a box of Rise Up CDs in the house and listening to Russ's music and um like I went to Keats at a young age as well so that was a big part of my life from the time I was 10 or 11 even um went to some church church services with my families and then um as I started my own faith journey out of Keats I was really really deeply interested in the Christian faith and and Enjoyed a great deal of it, and I went to NSA Youth and I got involved with Keats. I was staff and I did staff training as well. And then as I came into my teenage years, a lot of you know Elvira Corbin.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I worked under Elvira at Keats, and Elvira affectionately calls herself uh, my spiritual Oma. Um, and I lived with Elvira for a couple of years. Um, so I felt like all throughout my life there were markers of great spiritual influence and great. Um, yeah, like, God just being present in every step of my life as I grew up. Uh, I now work in the music industry. I met my first band that I worked with. Brennan, who's here, was in one of them.
1: Um,
3: I We met at Keats as well, so I feel like I can, like, see how God's influence has been there through every step. And even one of the bands I work with now that's quite big is also Christian as well. So it's, like, there's always been a great spiritual influence over the years. And I think it's interesting that music has also tied in throughout that from the beginning. It's always been, like, a big part of my spiritual life.
0: Can you all hear Alex? Okay. All good. Yeah. What CD was it that you were opening? Coming clean? Pretty sure.
3: I think it was Dancing, Dancing in the in Field, the field. Yeah. which had my sister on the cover. That's, nice. yeah. <laughs> yeah that's awesome.
0: Um, Alex, when did you realize that you were gay? Describe the process and or the moment.
3: Mm-hmm. I think when we talked about this before, I said it's different between When did you realize you were gay, or when did you realize that you had same-sex attraction? Because those that's a it's easy to be like, well, if you had same-sex attraction, then you're gay. It's like, well, no, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, but I started to realize that I had attraction. Um, probably when I hit puberty in high school. Um, and it was 15 years of trying to figure out how I identified after that. Um and didn't really truly come out until 2018. So, you know, when did I personally realize it's like, well, at some point in that spectrum between realizing you have attraction and actually coming out. So it's, it's not as easy as just saying, when did you realize you were gay? It's like, you know, you're trying to figure it out as you grow up and try to discern how you fit into the world. And, um, yeah it's it's not uh, yeah, like a easy question to answer yeah yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I'm going to insert another question here, which mm-hmm. is it, it bridges to the Christian faith one, but do you think that it took you longer because of your Christian faith?
3: I don't know it doesn't it's funny how much i didn't I didn't think about my Christian faith as uh, a barrier, really it wasn't like a fear of condemnation. It wasn't a fear of, oh, I'm going to go to hell if I come out. It's like, well, I am this. So it's not like I, it's not like I have a choice really. This is just who I am. How do I reconcile who I am with Mm -hmm. this, this attraction that I have? So I felt like that was the work that I had to do for so long was trying to reconcile who I was as a person with my sexual orientation um yeah and, and and i felt like there was a lot of things that were tied into that in terms of you know people I hung out with the things i could do with my spare time like all those things it, it's it's difficult when your sexual orientation seems to go against the norm quote unquote
0: mm. so that was as much an issue as the, the christian faith
3: mm-hmm. issue. yeah right it was i would say more so the heteronormative standards yes. of the world were okay. the things that were kind of pushing back on me. I felt that more than any kind of Christian like barrier. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, so tell us a little bit more about that Christian faith piece though. Like mm-hmm. how did that, did you, was, yeah. So was it hard for you to reconcile those two things Yeah. what kinds of messages were you hearing about
3: definitely being think, gay
0: like in the church? and.
3: Yeah. I think it was more so that when, I think if anyone here has ever worked at a Christian summer camp or anything that, like that, there's always the, the times that we separate out the men and the women. We're going to get all the guys together. We're going to talk about how we respect the women. And we're going to get all the women together. And we're going to talk about how we can be women of God at camp this summer. Like, yeah. Yeah. that just happens <laughs> at the beginning of every I summer. It's like, get into your sunburst. little groups and off you yeah. go. And when nobody in the room is even acknowledging that gay people exist, what's easier to raise your hand in a room of 20 guys and be like, what about me? Or just go like, okay, where's my like, room? Yeah. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to, you know, nudge my bro here and be like, haha oh, Yeah, dude, totally. I totally am right there with you. Oh yeah. I struggle all the time with being attracted to the women at camp. Wow. <laughs> it's So at first, you're just kind of like, I'm just going to try and get through this part of the day because everything else is great. I just have to deal with this one little thing. But then as time goes on, when you have no peers, how do you have community? Mm -hmm. So you start to feel like you're not ever being acknowledged. But if no one's ever talking about who you are and what you feel, then you start to build fear of like, okay, well, if, if someone finds out or someone like, you know, suspect something like it starts to become this thing that always lingers in the back of your mind so you start to see how the mental health aspect of this it just it's like this thing that's always hanging over you always nudging into every conversation you have with any person you know someone says like you know hey i need to talk to you about something i heard then you're like it just you felt like that, that cold like fear like go through you where you're like oh gosh do they know um so yeah, that was like that. I think that's like one of the things that I, the only thing I can remember about homosexuality even coming up when I was at camp was, um, one time living waters being alluded to. Someone's like, "Oh, and by the way, if you ever uh, feel like you're struggling with same sex same sex attraction, there's a thing called living waters you can go to." And that was like the only thing. And then other than that, everyone was kind of like, "Oh yeah, but that's none of us." And moving on. Um. So again, and, and so again, it's like how do you expect an 18 year old to have the confidence at that point to walk up to some Christian leader and be like, I think I'm gay.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Tell me about this. And that sounds like it's for me. It's again, it's like, it's easier just to put that aside and go forward with the other things that are good for now. Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: <clears throat> so it sounds like actually, like I haven't heard you say anything that you picked up that was condemning, but it sounds like the silence actually was like toxic silence almost right like it was the silence that was that made you feel wonder if you should feel shame yeah
3: Yeah. exactly it's like just being completely left adrift to try and figure it out which that right there i I said i think i said to you i said you can see why so many lgbtq people just leave the church you're all of a sudden just going well there's no one here that's identifying the way i am and no one's talking about me and no one's acknowledging that I even exist, if we're trying to preach a community aspect and inclusion and, and love and acceptance, but you're never being included in that, you're just gonna go, okay, well, I'll go find out where that place is for me.
0: Um, I'm inserting another question here, Alex. Uh, like what would, what would have helped, what would have it helped you to hear? at keats at
3: church i think that like we recognize that this is a part part of the population you know like maybe we don't need to be it it goes back almost to the theological structure in a way it's like maybe we don't need to be dividing people into these camps of the females have to go over here and talk and the males have to go over here and talk. It's like, maybe you can sit down the staff and have a frank conversation about how we as adults will behave together at camp in terms of relationships and honoring one another and sexual relations and all these things that come up at summer camp. It's like, maybe we don't need to divide people into separate rooms.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: we just need to have a conversation with everybody in the room. So it's not as much as being like you need to be like, all right, you know everybody and hey, gay people too. It's like, no, no, how do we just have it? It's like you just have everyone in the room, and then it's not yeah. such a big deal to try and and you know, and that's I, I wrote down here restructure our approaches. I'm like that's the number one thing I think is like we just restructure how we've the the way that we've always done things clearly isn't working. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's time that we change the way that we do things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Even just to go back to what Todd said, like you know, that separating the the guys and the girls, like if that's that's a theological statement, right? It's a theology that's underneath that practice. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Um Any more you want to say about reconciling Christian faith and your orientation? Before we move um. On to the next question.
3: I never felt like my faith was separate from any of it. Hmm. Um. I always was greatly aware of God's presence. I always um I've always felt his his urging and nudging towards certain things in my life. And the greatest thing that I felt was how can you say that you're a child of God if you're trying to live a lie and say that you're straight? How can you how can you say that and then go out and lie to people every single day? And if who I'm created to be is a perfect of God that's why I've been created to be this is the way I'm made mm-hmm. then I have to be faithful to God and be who I am
1: mm-hmm.
3: and so when I made like that kind of personal revelation um, I thought it was interesting like, like the the first person I actually came out to was Brennan and I was I just like was having this revelation he was like well what do you think who do you who do you want to talk to about I said I think I want to call Kim I think I want to talk to my pastor because mm-hmm. I think I want some guidance through a big major life revelation and the person that people often turn to in those times is their pastor or counselor and like my faith was always fully tied into it it never was a separate thing that was like okay so you're gay so now how are you going to take these two things that are like oil and water and, and, and make them go together it was like who i am is gay and a christian
0: Pretty sacred time, actually, when we had that conversation, Alex. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your trust. I mean, I bought you coffee, but still. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so tell us how your family, friends, and people in the church responded when you came out to them uh, as a way of telling it. I said, share one positive story and negative story, but you don't have to do it that way. Just tell us how folks responded
3: i don't recall a whole lot of negative reception um i feel like one of the things that you subconsciously do as a closeted person is weed out the people in your life who could be
0: uh like preemptively
3: yeah it's like you know i'm not going to associate with people who think this way or talk this way um I had a great deal more of like, I think a lot of the fear I had around coming out conversations were being treated differently by certain friends or having certain jokes. I had with certain people being interpreted differently or it, it just, you have to rethink about all the things that you've done with certain friends and like, you know, and a couple of those friends were the ones who really in the end were the most moving conversations for me that they were like, I don't know why you'd ever think this would be an issue. I just like want you to know I love you. And like, You know you're like you're my best friend i just love you that's like there's nothing more to to have to reconcile there um the difficult most difficult conversations were the christian friends or people that i knew that responded with the classic well you know sin is sin Mm -hmm. and um but i love you Mm -hmm. you know but you know hate the sin not the sinner Mm -hmm and it's like oh that's
0: another one of those triggers or, yeah and,
3: and, but it, I'm like it, it'd be the equivalent of someone saying if you asking someone to forgive you and they go well I don't forgive you but I'll continue hanging out with you it's so backhand that you're like you don't actually love me or accept me you just told me that you think who I am is sinful and you're going to love me but you're going to hate my sin which is who I am so those things don't go together I don't know how you can say you're going to love me and yet also hate who I am
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, tell us a bit about what your life is like right now unless you don't have more to say on the other on stories about people's responses
3: um, yeah I, I, I don't feel like I had like a whole lot of like a remarkable okay
1: yeah, that's fine. responses
3: like there yeah the people that i was like stalling on telling even turned out to be like mm. by the way like i heard and i i don't know if like that's preventing you from wanting to see me or hang out with me but like i love you and i don't care mm. um so i think that was like one of the things i wrote down was the urgency aspect of like yeah we can't continue to have uh conversation about maybe making a decision or a a conversation around dance around the issue it's like there's an urgency of like these people need to know that they are loved and accepted now Mm
0: -hmm.
3: before yeah before we lose any more
0: you're talking about an urgency for people to know that they're loved yeah regardless Um, yeah 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 i hear you um tell us a bit about what your life is like right now
3: Um, in what, in what sense?
0: (laughs) Vocation, significant relationship, mental, emotional health, Yeah.
3: Um,
0: spiritual life, family relationships.
3: I am newly single, just broke up with uh, my boyfriend about a month ago. Um, and that was interesting because it was the first person I ever tried bringing to church. Um, and it was fine for him. But I didn't, I, I was, it was interesting how much I stressed about it, even, even though I knew that, like, you know, most people there are probably going to be super thrilled to meet my partner. Um,
0: I might have been a little bit
3: too excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I was trying was, to
1: tone it down. <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, yeah, but again, it's like that, that feeling of like, why am I second guessing bringing the person that I love to church? Mm. Like you should be excited to bring them. Um, my life otherwise right now, I I travel a great deal. For I work in the music industry, I do artist management. It's um, very fulfilling work in a lot of ways. Uh, I I work with a lot of Christians. Not making not making Christian music, but some of them are making Christian music. But um, it, it's it feels really important to like go out and share art with the world right now and to connect with people from different cultures and different parts of the country and share music with them um I also work as a paramedic as well for BC ambulance and yeah I feel like I feel like my faith does tie into my my job's quite a bit like I really do enjoy helping people a lot, whether it's helping get their art heard or helping them realize their artistic visions or whether it's helping people in their time of need. Like that's very much who I am as a person. I really enjoy helping others. And I think that's partly why I was excited about this conversation and being a part of it was that it felt like a way to help. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I said to you at the beginning, I said, "I I don't wanna be a poster boy I don't want to be some banner waiver. I don't want to have to be the person who comes to church and is like, I'm gay, I'm here, you know. It's just like, I just, want to, I just want to do my life and be able to do that and be who I am. So, but this is, it feels like a way of helping. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, how would you describe your relationship with Jesus now?
3: Pretty great, yeah. Um, I feel like I, I love engaging people in difficult conversations around Christianity right now. Not just about LGBTQ inclusion, but I I I really really love talking about the like we were talking about repentance at our micro church this past Sunday. Repentance is really fascinating to me right now, and um, music still being a huge part of my life. I feel like I find a lot of my time that I feel really still and have a lot of peace is when I'm usually like listening to worship music in solitude. Um, I've been going through one of Bob Goff's devotional books right now and really, really loving that. And also reading the book that you gave me, the what does, the, what does the Bible actually mean, or how to, oh uh, how do uh, I, I
0: and book. how Peter the Bible and, actually, how the Bible works.
3: actually works, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's yeah, being yeah, really yeah. interesting as well, and trying to deconstruct some of the theological framework of which we were raised mm-hmm. to understand how people use the book and how people are supposed to interpret it, yeah. but yeah, it's.
0: um final question and then you can add anything else that you want to say uh knowing that there are people in our community who are 100 percent affirming cautiously affirming conflicted compassionate but non-affirming uh what could you offer us as we continue this journey we 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 are saying that we are wanting to be this church of wider embrace we are that Mm -hmm. but what can you offer us as we continue to try and be that like fully embody it like we're saying it but how do we embody it how do we what do we need to know
1: Mm
0: -hmm. yeah what would you say to us
3: It's, it's it's almost like what your thesis was in a lot of ways it's like be be more curious um ask more, ask more questions of people and don't be so quick to jump on what you've always understood and know. It's mm-hmm. um, a tough, that's a tough, that's a loaded question. Mm-hmm. I just, all the, thing, the only thing that came to mind was just like to be more curious. Be
0: more curious is actually a pretty brilliant <laughs> response. Yeah. Um, a follow up question. Just do you want? Do you have any more to say about that sense of urgency that you feel? Because we, we touched on it a little bit mm-hmm. over coffee. We had that. I heard it from you. Just tell us a little bit more. About, like, tell yeah. us
1: about
0: that urgency. Like, I, urgency. And to what?
3: I've, I've, there, there feels like an urgency to get. To to like move to the to the next step already okay. is what I feel because.
0: Next step being what?
3: saying that you're an affirming church or that all people are welcome and removing the LGBTQ thing, just saying all people are welcome. Like everybody is welcome. Every race, you know, gender, gender expression, sexuality, everyone's welcome. Because the thing that I've, it's, it's been a very, very interesting place to stand. Cause I, we talk talked about the, the bridge metaphor of like, these are like bridging conversations to get from one place to the next. It's like often I feel like I'm staying on this bridge mm-hmm. where it's amazing how often when I bring up my faith with guys that I'm on a date with, I would say almost nine times out of ten, most gay people are like, okay, I'm so glad to hear that you have a spiritual life because I've always wanted to talk about my spiritual life, but I've always been felt like I'm not supposed to have a spiritual life if I'm a gay person. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And I'm like, what has been instilled into them that somehow if you are gay, you therefore cannot have a spiritual life? Mm -hmm. And
0: Nine out of ten?
3: I, it's a, it's amazing. I would say almost every guy I've gone on a date with usually is like, oh, I have a spiritual life. Oh my gosh, I'm super interested in, in mm-hmm. faith and I'm super interested in in the idea of God. And um, I feel an urgency because someone's like, hey, I'm interested in faith. Yeah. Where, what do you say to a person like that? Oh, you should come to church with me. I will come to my church. Oh, sorry, my church, we're not... Well, we're trying to figure it out. We're not sure where we stand right now. <laughs> it's like... They're, that's where the urgency comes in of like it's like these are not these are not people that we're like gonna go and have to find or we're gonna have to, you know, comb through trying to find people that are interested and have LGBTQ status. It's like these people are out there right now and they are looking for a home and we are failing. Like we are failing every single day that we continue to stall and not say that we are affirming. And the longer that goes on, the longer that like, you know, more people are like, you know, that are gay, that are walking away from the faith. It's happening every single day. And it's, it breaks my heart whenever I meet another person who is gay, who was like, oh, I grew up in the church. What happened? Well, I came out and my parents told me to, you know, get lost. Oh, you know, everyone that I knew, all my friends turned their back on me. And I'm just like, how is that modeling God's kingdom? How is that being like Jesus? It it's, and that's where the urgency comes in for me. It's like, it's just like, it's not, it's not a eventually thing. It's not a hopefully tomorrow. It's like right now. It needs to happen right freaking now. It's urgent. Yeah. And for me, it's also because I'm like, because I want to get off this damn bridge. I just want to go and bring my gay <laughs> friends to <church>. yeah. <laughs>
0: Can we just do a gay Sunday? Can we just do gay Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> oh, just kidding.
3: Oh,
1: Just cute. Cute.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Um and just so you know, Alex has never actually said, like we like you've spoken really really passionately right then. Like this these events are not happening because Alex said, Kim, we have to do this. Like just yeah. like just so you know. Like Kim came to me. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, but I invited you to speak about the urgency because I know you feel it. Um, mm-hmm. so just wanted to, yeah. to be clear about that. Um, so.